The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Introducing you to some of the Christian Anahata models. Last time I started presenting some of the stories from the Patericons some of the exemplary stories and I hope that you have managed to pick up at least one at least one simple element of behavior from those and to try to apply it for the week which has passed and I hope you'll do that in the future <coughs> to try to pick up elements of the Anahata Chakra behavior of the values of Anahata Chakra and to try to apply them thus transforming this into your own characteristics. And I will start by reading a few more inspiring stories precisely for this NLP modeling and at some point I will stop and also read some commentaries upon the psychological characteristics, upon different psychological characteristics <clears throat> which are directly related to the arousing of Anahata Chakra. One of the stories speaks about a one of these practitioners, one of these spiritualists called Aretas, and the story, the Codex, says something like this. There was a brother called Aretas who was more careless in his spiritual life, which means he was not practicing a lot. He was a lazy practitioner. When he was about to die, some of the old fathers came and sat around him. And seeing they, seeing they, this old man, uh, going away with joy and going away from his body with great joy, <clears throat> and wanting to clarify everybody else and to take to learn something from this because it sounds neverosimil that this man who did not do proper practice or he did much less than the others he still he was not experiencing fear in front of death and all the other things and he says brother believe me one of them tells to him brother believe me we all know that you haven't been very industrious in, in your asceticism, in your endeavors. How then are you going away with so much fervor, with so much joy? And the brother who was dying told to him, Believe me, father, you have said the pure truth, but since I have become a monk, I don't know ever to have judged a human being. But... Always, in the same day, if there was a trouble, I was making peace with him again immediately. And I would like to tell to God, you said, O Lord, do not judge so that you shall not be judged. And also you have said, forgive and you shall be forgiven. And all of them becoming highly edified, the old man told to him, peace to you, my son, because look, even without effort, 
and still you saved yourself. This is one of the most amazing natural things of Anahata Chakra, which Jesus has emphasized so many times. Jesus keeps saying, with the measure with which you measure, God will measure to you. Judge and you will be judged. And the opposite, forgive and you shall be forgiven. And therefore this brother, this old man, this practitioner from this story, he was not doing much, but actually he was doing an amazing thing, and that amazing thing wouldn't have been possible without a real transformation of the heart. He said, I never judged anybody since I was a monk, and if there was any strife, I immediately made peace with that person in the same day. He never allowed even a single day to pass so that he should have any grudge, any anger, any being upset or anything. He immediately went and asked for forgiveness and he gave forgiveness and he never judged anybody. Then then he was relying on the saying of Jesus who says, if you don't judge, then you are not going to be judged. This comportamental, this behavioral pattern is very, very important. If you could avoid judging, at least to a certain extent, and here is an amazing story, it's a bit longer, it reflects some elements on Anahata and it reflects elements on other chakras, there are elements on Manipura, as well as elements of the nobleness of being, which are related to Vishuddha as well. It's a long, long story, uh, some three pages, and I translating it, it will be a bit clumsy and it will take a while, but I have made a sign here that I wanted to read it, because it actually refers ultimately at a relationship between a man and a woman, which is taken in this context of Anahata Chakra and this purity and purification. And it is about one of these saints called Galaktion and his wife, Episteme, and both of them decided to go to live the ascetic life. And the codex that we read of here says, and after they gave away their wealth, that was a must, they simply gave away everything, and from all those who were taking care of the goods of their house, they just asked a certain Eftolmius, one of their servants or friends, to follow them, and then they went out of their house, and they had in mind to lead the life of the hermits. After ten full days of walking, they reached to a mountain, which was called by the locals Puplin or Poplin, and which was close to Sinai Mountain. So it is somewhere in that area. Here, greeting or meeting twelve monks who were leading a very ascetic life, they have presented them with their purpose, they have told them what they wanted, and they asked them to be allowed to be accepted and to be registered in the register of the monks of that monastery, which after a few days has been done. Then Galaktion became one in the number of those men, and Episteme has been sent by them to one to a monastery which was more remote and which there were four women, four girls. 
choosing then Galaction, this type of life, which path which can be measured by measure didn't he take? Which of his, sen which of his senses didn't he educate, putting to all of them limits and measure and making them subjected to the reason, to the measured reason? It say it, this is a twisted way of saying it from that codex, which simply says he went beyond all limits. He disciplined all his senses. He uh, went everywhere and put measure with the reason and everything, with this temperance, with this spiritual temperance. So much he took care of fasting that for two years he ate bread only once a week. And out of that bread, very little, as long, as much as to stay alive only. Together with non-eating, he was also striving with vigils, vigils, in case you didn't get it, it's a more rare word in English, it means to stay up in the night, and instead of sleeping, to do prayer the whole night, or meditation, or whatever you want to call it. And therefore, he was also striving with the vigils, and with the careless with a ceaseless care of prayer, for prayer. Like he was striving to pray non-stop. So much he was taking care of his self-control that since the day when he joined the monastic life, he never even bared to see a woman in front of his eyes. A sure proof of his attitude is that two young brothers, two young monks, having a mother who not only that was very virtuous, but was also living far from the world, and she was getting old in her own ascetic life, they asked him to see their mother and to give her some blessings so that he could, he could also have part of her maternal blessings. And he, he did not accept even that. The twisted again, the translation is bad because it's a completely different syntax. But what I'm striving to say is that a typical characteristic which is here is precisely this self-control which you read about when you read in the posture of the lion in the Simhasana that working on Anahata and developing those qualities gives this kind of extraordinary, extraordinary self-control, not in a willy way, not in a violent way, but in an effective way, in a way which comes from the heart. Thus being, and going straight forward towards all virtue, he was not to the liking of the evil one, of the devil, who, hiding under the emperor which had power in those days, stirred him up against all Christians and pushed him to prepare an open persecution against all of them. So his view, or the view of the person who wrote this, is that the emperor who did this, as well as many others, they were manipulated by the devil, and actually it was like the devil was somehow taking revenge over those who were making spiritual efforts, because it's like the devil hated them because they prayed so much, and they lived such a divine type of life. So there was a persecution, one of the famous Christian persecutions, 
This is therefore happening before the time of Constantine the Great in 350. And he started with all the violence against them, some of them punishing them, he himself, and others through his own lieutenants who were same with him. Coming to him, those who were trying to use such circumstances, the opportunists, the people who found a way to make career out of this persecution time, they told him that those who lived up on Mount Sinai, they did not worship the gods, but they were worshipping only a single god which was crucified, and all the worship bring only to him. Then the emperor as hit by blindness by this word, by this story, like why would somebody get angry because of that, but that's the diabolic spirit, it's like it's absurd, he immediately ordered that the phalanx of soldiers, uh, almost a legion, it's part of a legion, should immediately conquer the mountain and bring tied up all the Christians who live in this mountainous area. So he couldn't, he had so many problems in his empire, but he had armies to send to some ascetics somewhere in a deserted mountain where nobody lived far, far away from Constantinopolis and from, from Byzantium and from Rome. This is what shows exactly the diabolic hate which uh, exists, like it's disproportionate. Why couldn't he sleep quietly in the night knowing that some people, some faraway corner of his world were sitting and praying? That's precisely what shows that this author was right. Indeed, this man was possessed by the devil, although he probably looked like a normal person in daily life. While those who were sent in that place were about to catch this godly man, Episteme, the woman, the lady from our story, who was living in this hermitage and she was living a very ascetic life, in the middle of the night she saw a dream. She, she, it looked to her that she was walking together with Galaction in a temple where their heads were adorned with laurel crowns by the emperor. In the morning, by telling to the principal of the monastery what she saw in her dreams, she was taught clearly what the dream means. The temple was the kingdom of heaven. The emperor is the one who alone and truly and naturally is emperor of the universe. And the laurel crowns seem to show that now they will have to go to the martyrdom, to the martyrdom struggle. And they will be in this struggle more skillful than their opponents. You see an absolutely amazing view upon martyrdom. This is very much not Muladhara but Anahata in terms of how light it is that they interpreted it that even martyrdom is like a struggle to prove your skill. If you are not skillful, you will not resist. And if you are skillful, they will not be able to put you down and you will be able to stand everything. Fulfilling the order which was given to them, the soldiers reached there in the area only after everybody else ran away and they found only two of the monks 
out of which one of them was our Galactian. Therefore, this one was taken by them and carried by them, and finding this episteme was set, or she went in a place which was more remote in that mountain, from where she could see what was happening there. And she saw with her own eyes things which is not impossible even to hear in your hearing. Galaction being taken bound and he was expected, he was expecting heavy trials, really heavy work. And then falling to the ground, she prayed much to the principal of her monastery to let her go to Galaction and if she would be allowed to be thrown in the same chains with him. And if he has to give his life, then she will subject herself to the same death. Because this was also a thing upon which they had made a deal, they had an understanding about this long time ago, and that would be that they should never have any difference between them in their opinion and in their status and in their state. They basically decided to share everything, absolutely everything. It would be horrible then that when time requires that, she should show that she forgot what she had to do. In the beginning, the this abbess of the monastery, the principal, tried with many words to dissuade her, to deviate her from her determination, but since she was unable to convince them, she then allowed her to do whatever she wanted. And then she took goodbye with joy for the last time from the women with whom she spent time together, and she started walking behind Galaction, and when she came close enough, she yelled out of her voice, My Lord and the guide of my salvation, do not quit me, my wife, do not forget what we established together, what we decided together. Hearing this, the wild servants of unfaith, the soldiers, that is, they turned from their way and catching her, they also threw her in chains without saying anything and even not deigning, like being full of contempt and not even asking her a single question. In this um, situation, Galaction, he was not stopping ever with his counsels, and even walking chained with chains, he was counseling her the good things, telling her, let these enemies not cheat you, woman, let them not advise you to lack of faith, scaring you with their threats, or tempting you with the pleasures of the world. While he said this, somebody very in a big haste came and looking very disturbed in his face said that these saints were going to be judged the next day because this is what the prefect, the county leader, whatever he would be called, the local judge had decided. And therefore, the second day the judge ordered that these two people should be brought at the place where judge was given. Bringing them in a great haste, this prosecutor never asked them what happened, why they have been brought there, 
none of the usual questions. He never tried to use any flattering words to convince them, but looking with hate and threatening to Galaction, he raised his voice full of anger. Who is this who has this melancholic and sad face and who dishonors our gods bringing honor or bringing veneration to another god? But Galaction, not having fear and not coming out of his usual state, so he did not become neither afraid nor angry, he was in his normal state, this equanimity, said, I am leading the life of a monk, and from Christ I have my name, and therefore I am called Christian, and to him I give veneration with all my mind. As the saint perorated or spoke with even more clarity, and like with this kind of showing clearly what it was against him, and even had irony for his gods, calling also as mindless those who venerate soulless things, because uh, it was the Christian theory of that time that the Roman worship was addressing to inferior deities, not to the enlightened uh, elements of the universe, and therefore that that was a kind of witchcraft magic, or if you want, an idol worship in a language. And because he dared to say that the people who do this are mindless, then that accursed man, he ordered that this man, that Galaction, should be tied up with his hands in the back, and that he should be beaten mercilessly with these things which are made from the veins of the oxen. The policemen were wearing them in the old days, something which was made from the veins of the cows, of the oxen, uh, which is basically like a rubber club. It is the equivalent of the police rubber clubs from today. Seeing him thus whipped and beaten and suffering so much, Episteme, his wife, shouted, Oh, you soul which do not have any society, which are, we are not having enough to punish. Why do you give so much beating to these uh, limbs which are almost eaten by the trouble, by the work of asceticism? Why, the, why didn't the hand of these servants who beat him up, why didn't his hand get paralyzed? And at this, the local prosecutor, she simply lamented uh, in front of this terrible injustice and of the fact that, of course, being in the heart, she could feel empathically this horrible situation, which is showing to you the way Anahata Chakra reacts in absolutely horrible circumstances. And uh, you know that a proverb says that character is often proven in hard times rather than in good times. So here you see where Anahata goes. At which the prosecutor became even more inflamed with anger and he said, this brazen, shameless woman, undress her of her clothes all the way till her shirt and give her a lot of beating so that she should learn to speak with 
moderation and should not be so arrogant with the superiors and with the people in charge. This be this commandment being executed with great haste and this punishment lasting for long time in bearing all these horrors this martyr resisted in a supernatural way. She never stopped for a second to shout to the judge reproaching to him this fact which was lacking uh, decency because not only that she had to undergo to be naked showing her body which had to remain unseen that especially because she was a nun and she had to stay dressed and not naked but also ordering that this punishment should happen in public in front of many people that is why she said I will wait for you at the judgment at the other judgment at the judgment from the other world but even here not very not after very long time you will be reached by the righteous judgment of God as she said this indeed uh, so everybody went completely berserk because she said she mentioned the judgment of God the righteousness of God and the sentence was passed and uh, all those who were around the prosecutor they mutilated them and among others they plucked their eyes out of their orbits but this became a holy occasion of glory and to those who were giving this punishment it became an opportunity of salvation because the plugging out of their eyes was so that the cloud of their soul should dissipate and that they should that there should shine in them the light of the knowledge of God. That is why they confessed their belief in Christ and together with the light of the soul they, pre they received also the light of the of their body and these people who gave this punishment and were part of this were men and they are not two or three but they are all in all 53 people in number this complicated sentence which I translated so clumsily is basically saying that while these people according to their resistance and faith they became martyrized and thus they reached salvation Funny enough, this was becoming, because of their attitude, salvation for the people who tortured them, exactly as in the case of Jesus, where the soldiers who crucified Jesus, eventually all of them became converted to Christianity. The, all the people who nailed him to the cross and who played dice on the clothes of Jesus and all the rest, they carried with them a kind of incredible trauma afterwards, and after a number of years, the momentum in their heart because they could not understand. Jesus, the man that they crucified, had forgiven them and prayed for them. Even the followers of Jesus were praying for them and because Jesus had forgiven them. And this momentum created such a spiritual revolution in their hearts that eventually all of them became converted. And there are so many stories uh, like the famous novels of Henrik Sienkiewicz Vovadis and the others where you see those stories the robe, the famous Hollywood movie and the others and that is why the story says that in the in that time because of the martyrdom of those two husband and wife 
53 other men who were soldiers, they changed in their hearts and they actually became, they had, they received light in their soul. This is the absolutely overwhelming power of sacrifice which can conquer the universe. With this, even after this happening, the this procurator or prosecutor or whatever, he was this local official with his mind still blinded because evil had marked him until the depths of his being, he, decided, he ordered that they should sharpen straw, like the thing which grows in the water, the straw which grows in the water. I'm missing the word now. Anyhow, these plants out of which you can uh, knead things. So to sharpen the stalks of this straw and to plug it under the nails of these men, the men and the women of, of these saints. And this order also was executed quickly. But the saints showed even more patience in their suffering, confessing their joy for the one for whom they were enduring all these and having complete contempt for the veneration of the gods which had lying names, cheating names. It is obvious from this you can see that already these two people had entered in states of superconsciousness. They are only dimly aware of their body. That's an experience which is common in martyrdom. When the martyrdom is based on the real thing, then those people usually are taken by some angelic forces and they are put in a state of trance where the suffering of the body starts becoming like a shadow, like a distant echo, and their soul is hyperactive. It's for them internally, although a horrifying thing, it is at the same time a moment of glory. It's like, again, a trance, and that's why it is incomprehensible from outside, because the more they are given to suffer, the more they worship God, and the more grateful they become for what is happening there, and this is almost like insanity. Then, the judge ordered that they should be, that their hands and feet should be cut off, and also their tongues, since his soul, which was feeding on blood, had a special pleasure in torturing people who were of the same kin with him, of the same country with him, of the same uh, nation with him. And that was done also quickly. And since the martyrs were continuing to remain stable in their beliefs, this frightening judge and very cruel punisher took the ultimate decision concerning the martyrs, ordering them to be killed by the sword. Then they left from this world, being chopped off their head, being decapitated, on the 5th of November, and afterwards their bodies have been put in coffins, in uh, simple coffins. Ephtolmius, the one which we have mentioned before, their former servant, and to whom the martyr had ordered to follow him, and which uh, prepare these coffins for them, and uh, so that they would be mentioned for uh, veneration to others also 
and the story basically ends here. It is a it was a twisted one. It's very very difficult for me to translate this. Uh, it's a very convoluted language because it's the old-fashioned type of language, and um, the points are pretty clear. This endurance, this amazing endurance. Um, you have witnessed basically an act of martyrdom out of which there have been unfortunately thousands and thousands and uh, this is unfortunately such a bad note for this planet because while some people live in God some people are at levels which are under the levels of animality because even animals wouldn't have gone as far as that so uh, we have plenty of light and plenty of darkness on this planet, as you very well know. Here is another story, much more bright, um, which is uh, showing other elements, among others, humbleness, extraordinary humbleness. In the monastery that we mentioned of Arcelan, there was all, there lived also one called Ava, Ava, like Abba in uh, Aramaic and in uh, Hebrew, is means father. So Ava, the old man, father, George, also nicknamed the Arcelite, the one from Arcelan's monastery, who had a great fame in our desert and about which many people told us many and great wonders and out of which I'll try to tell you also a few briefly. When the barbarians took over the road of Palestine, uh, that is uh, the Sarazin invasion, a Sarazin invasion, so this is something which happens in the year 610, 620. So when this event happened, the oil, the oil, the simple oil, the oil, the lamp, oil, like olive oil, uh, most probably, has become very spare, very rare in the holy mountain in Sinai. Because they are getting oil from Palestine, from the areas where there were olive tree plantations, and suddenly they wouldn't get oil. Then the abbot went to the monastery, to this little monastery of Arcelan, and asked the man of God, George, to come to the holy mountain not being able to disobey because this guy was an abbot and he had to obey because else he probably wouldn't have gone but he went because he had to obey out of obedience he went so <clears throat> not being capable not to obey to this abbot he left together with him and the abbot took him to an oil deposit like to a cellar to a place where they were holding the a storeroom a storehouse and asked him to make prayers for the barrels which had no oil at all in them. So basically he asked him to produce oil because they had no oil. Only such crazy people could think about a solution like this because they didn't think to import oil. They thought about bringing a holy man to pray to make some oil. They were living in a very different mentality and world. And... Uh, asked him to make prayer for these barrels of oil, which were empty by now. And then Father George, this Ava George, this old man George, said to the abbot half-jokingly, uh, Father, let us pray just for one barrel, because if we would pray for all of them, we'd be swimming in oil. 
then making prayer for a barrel, immediately the oil gushed from that barrel like from a spring, and immediately the man said towards the others who were there and doing service, take it and put it in the other barrels. And being all of them filled up, so they filled all the barrels with oil, the first barrel continued to spring, exactly what happened in the old days, in the Old Testament, in the time of Elijah. And then the starets, the this abbot, wanted to call this barrel by the name of George, to, to give to the barrel the name George in honor of this miracle. And then the old man told him, if you ever do anything like this, I'm going to stop the oil. After this, because of this, they called it, they called this barrel with the name of our most holy uh, lady, the one who gave birth to God, the mother of God. So they gave it the name of the Virgin Mary, not of this guy called George. And that barrel has lasted and has and is, has been preserved until today. That means, uh, of course, at the time when this was written. And above it, there is a oil lamp, which is carrying the name of the Most Holy Mother of God. This story, again going slow and clumsy, shows, first of all, an amazing state of spirit, because you can realize in what kind of state of consciousness these people lived, that for them miracles were something which could just happen. And also the fact that this man, in the middle of performing a glorious miracle, which is par with the miracles of Jesus, if you really uh, want to go that far, this man never accepted any aspect of egoism. This guy, naturally, and everybody being impressed, they asked that they should call this the barrel of George, because George made this barrel gush with oil. And George said, if you do that, I'm off. You know, this, it's over. I would never, ever accept anything like this. Another, and a last for now, because I want to read some of the other things in parallel, another story about another George. Father George Gadamet, a very pious old man, who was one of the oldest fathers in the Holy Mountain, told him, told us that while he was still young, it happened that there came here, he said, a brother who wanted to become a monk. He didn't tell to anybody, neither his country nor his name, and he had so much spiritual practice and so much silence that if there was no absolute need, he was never talking to anybody, to any human being, neither a lot of words nor a few words, like not at all, basically. Being very strong in his service, it says here, which means in his efforts, in his endeavor, in the middle of the second year, so being in the second year of his monkhood, he left to God. He passed away. Incredible. This man was a monk a year and a half, basically. So his practice was so intense that although young, he died. It almost makes you wonder like what kind of practice this was, because it was like almost this man dematerialized through his own spiritual practice. He was like something uh, extraordinary, formidable, terrible even. And uh, 
putting him in the graveyard where all the monks were, after another day, another one of the fathers died. So, so it so happened that a day later somebody else died after his funeral. And opening the tomb to bury the second one, because apparently they were burying everybody in the same grave, they didn't have several graves, so they simply said, well, open the grave and we'll put another one in the grave, because now we've got somebody else who just died. And opening the grave to bury him, we haven't found anymore the body of the brother which was buried the other day, because he had been moved to God with his body altogether. That's an example of the diamond body. This man was put in the grave today, and tomorrow they didn't find his body anymore. This example, and when you put it together with the fact that this man came and became a monk, and in a year and a half he was out of here, this is automatically showing something out of proportion. But besides this extraordinary practice, which is not necessary anahata being a much more complex thing, uh, the second part is showing us something about an attitude at the level of Anahata Chakra. After all these, we have done careful research because some people then claim that this young man had been the son of Mauritiu, the emperor of the Roman Empire, which was, which was saved alive by his nanny when the tyrant called Phocas, that's a Byzantine emperor who came after Mauritius, butchered in the hypodrome, in the amphitheater, in the Colosseum from Byzantium, these are the Eastern Roman Empire emperors, in the hypodrome. The hypodrome was where they were having races, horse races. So he, this Phoca, he made a coup d'etat, basically, and he killed Mauritius, and he butchered in the hypodrome all the sons of Mauritius, and the nanny, in that big turmoil, she managed to hide, and then she managed to change the child, and she gave her own son to be killed, instead of the son of the emperor. This woman, she had such a respect and such a feeling, that she preferred to give her own son, hiding and saving the life of the son of the emperor. When this boy grew up, the nanny told him the fact, the facts, the story, and because of this, he said, he preferred to bring himself to God as a ransom for the child that had been killed in place of him. This man reacted with the fact that being told, he didn't have any guilt about this story, right? He was an infant when this happened. But knowing that his nanny had to give her own child to be killed just to save him, this man, he felt he had a debt. He had to ransom somehow. Who am I that some other child should have been killed so that I should live? And therefore, he felt so such a debt, such a need to ransom, that he became a monk immediately, and he did spiritual practice of incredible art. You see, this kind of feeling is very, very unusual, because most people don't have this feeling of gratitude, of responsibility, of, you know, maybe you are owing to the universe, to God, to life, to whatever you want to put it, maybe you are owing a lot of things. No, because maybe not, maybe a child has not been killed so that you should live, but maybe God knows how many other things have happened. This man 
He couldn't carry this burden. He went and did fanatic spiritual practice because all his life he thought when I was young to live, somebody gave their own child to be killed so that I should live. It is exactly the feeling of Peter, the apostle of Christ, who according to the unwritten history, after the moment when he recovered, after he denied Jesus, he cried till the end of his life, day and night. It is said that Peter cried for more than 30 years. 30 years he was constantly weeping because his heart was totally aware of the fact that he had been a coward and he had denied Jesus and he had been just a miserable, just a worm, just a jellyfish. And he couldn't live with that. Many people would try to make themselves forget. This is where the modern culture does not cultivate anahata. These people chose to stay in that bitterness and to cry. They whipped themselves because it did them good. It made them reach God. It made them grow up. Normal people try to drink or to go to the disco and forget. Why forget? Why not prick yourself all the time? Put the thorn all the time and more. See, this is what Khalil Gibran said. If you do not understand the nature of love, you try to avoid the pain of love. In many of these stories, you find people who are joyous that they went to death or something. And some of them had great joy of the agape, of the love of the heart and of all the wonderful things. And some of them also had great sorrow. But their sorrow was not a depressive sorrow. was a very, very constructive sorrow. They had a sorrow which made them work even more. They had a sorrow which made them long for God. They had a sorrow which motivated them amazingly. That is why when you are in the heart chakra, you do not avoid the sorrow. You use it to make you do two times more spiritual practice. That's the way you use it. It's like if I am sad... Well, I am sad because I am egoistic. I am sad because I am ignorant. I am sad because I am this. I am sad because I am that. And therefore, do what? Well, don't eat tomorrow. Fast. Stay in the night and meditate. It's like you almost motivate yourself even with this sorrow. And therefore, the heart chakra has also the aspect of love and of joy and of smile. But it also has this aspect which is not comprehended. Kahlil Gibran, and I would like to read that for you, that's why I brought it with me, he insists on this aspect at some point of his uh, presentation of love, because he says if you are not understanding that, you will not reach God, you will not reach the full love. Listen how Kahlil Gibran presents this fundamental truth. I've read that before, but it's impossible that in such a series I shouldn't remind this one uh, wonderful presentation of love. Then said Almitra, speak to us of love. And he raised his head and looked upon the people and there fell a stillness upon them. And with a great voice he said, when love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep. Many of you want love. Well, be warned, the ways of love are hard and steep, in case you expect it. You probably want Hollywood love, which is Vadistana, and its ways are not hard and steep. Its ways are la 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 la, Bollywood, because that's not love. 
But if you want love, maybe you don't know what you are asking for. And when his wings enfold, you yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. Love will wound you, may wound you. And when he speaks to you, believe in him, though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. This is the truth. Love crucifies. That is something which is seen in the life of Jesus. Even in alchemy, the in one of the main instruments of the alchemists was this instrument in which you pound things to dust. You have something and you hit it with an instrument and you pound it to powder. This instrument in alchemy, it was called crucible. From where there comes the crucible word to use today for the devices used in metallurgic industry, chemistry and others. And this crucible comes from the cross. It's crucible because it's a crucifixion. It's like being crucified. And that is why for them this was the act of love. And funny enough, Kahlil Gibran expressed a similar idea just in one of the next paragraphs. Even as he ascends to your height and causes your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. So love has also this aspect that it destroys the attachment. It destroys this clinging to the earth, this inertia, this blind material force which keeps us there. And then he uses precisely this crucible metaphor. Like sheaves of corn he gathers you unto himself, he threshes you to make you naked, he sifts you to free you from your husks, he grinds you to whiteness, he kneads you until you are pliant, and then he assigns you to his sacred fire that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. While this allusion is obvious to the bread, which is both the Jewish bread and the Christian bread and others given for communion and for all the holy rituals, at the same time, it shows that the transformation through which you go is like being threshed, being sifted, being ground, being kneaded, being undergoing, therefore, tough things. All these things shall love do unto you, that you may know the secrets of your heart, and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. But if in your fear you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you shall laugh but not all of your laughter and weep but not all of your tears. This is exactly, he says, if you don't have the courage to go the full Monty, you will never explore love in its totality. Love in its totality asks this courage that you should go even when it hurts. Yes, even when you are thrashed and where you are uh, netted and all the rest of the things, all the metaphors which he uses. And then he contains, he continues with things which are not in the same trend, but still they are his ideas about love and they are amazing. 
Love gives not but itself and takes not but from itself. And that is like Paul in the Bible. It's the same idea. Love possesses not nor would it be possessed. That's important. You don't feel like possessing, but you don't feel like being possessed. There is this freedom as well. For love is sufficient unto love. When you love, you should not say, God is in my heart, but rather I am in the heart of God. And think not, you can direct the course of love, for love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. Therefore, we, in the hands of love, we cannot really decide that. As a difference to this, you can see what the unfortunate soul that was the deviated black sex magician of England, Alistair Crowley, in his famous book of uh, the law, which he brought through channeling and other things, which was supposed to be a divine revelation, he uses the famous, one of his main dictums, which is almost the motto of Alistair Crowley's uh, sex magic organization, movement, whatever you want to call it, and this pretends it's like a verse from the scriptures, it's like a divinely inspired verse to him, is love under law, no, I'm sorry, love under will, this is the law. Love cannot be under will, says Kahlil Gibran. Love has its own will. You cannot submit love to the will. You cannot control its way, he says. If love finds you worthy, which means if you have the grace of having love in you already, that love will guide you, you won't guide it. And therefore our attempts <coughs> to guide love are actually attempts from Manipura. From Manipura we try to control Anahata. We are afraid to be in Anahata and we try to control it from Manipura because this is love under will. Even in the natural order of chakras, the will is under love, not love is under will. Love is above the will, not under the will. And that is what shows exactly this egoistic, topsy-turvy reverse of values. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires. See, that's why it's not like the Hollywood love, because love is not with desires and what Kahlil Gibran says these could be defined as the desires of love. They are more like a meditative wisdom. They are not desires in the telenovela, soap opera, blind, blind passion type of desires. He says these be your desires. To melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night. To know the pain of too much tenderness, to be wounded by your own understanding of love, and to bleed willingly and joyfully, to wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving, to rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy, to return home at eventide with gratitude, and then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and the song of praise upon your lips. And a few more readings, let's approach from another angle as well. I have the intention 
to read a few of the truths from the, one of the volumes of the Philokalia, some of the commentaries of our beloved Peter of Damascus. He makes some commentaries upon various aspects of spiritual life, and some of them are actually states of consciousness which proceed directly from the arousing of Anahata Chakra. They are virtues from Anahata Chakra. He speaks about discrimination. Discrimination is not necessarily a virtue of Anahata Chakra, although surely the heart, in an enlarged meaning, gives a special sort of discrimination. He speaks about others and others. Not all of them are direct resultants of the heart, because many of the people who practice these virtues, they are not only in the heart, like 100% Anahata, and nothing else. So for them, spiritual life was mixing up with some powerful virtues on Manipura, like to have spiritual courage and others of the like. Some of their practice was mixing up with spiritual virtues on Vishuddha, like to have nobleness of character, to be pure, and to have this wonderful nobleness of the spirit, uh, refinement of the spirit, and therefore... There are many virtues blended, but many of them at the same time are purely from Anahata. And I will stop at some of them. I will start here with uh, two of them. I will start with a very brief word which he has to say about humility. Humility or humbleness is without any doubt one of the biggest gifts of Anahata Chakra and it is one of the gifts which is most neglected in this civilization, and not coincidentally, because humility or humbleness is the absolute antipode and opposite of arrogance and pride. And as you may have heard, arrogance or pride is the worst of all the failures and of all the vices being termed as nothing else than the doom of Satan, the arch villain, the very archetype of evil, fell out of grace, not because of greed for money, not because of lust for sex, but because of pride. Pride which is looked upon with, with much uh, tolerance in these days, like, well, pride is almost a quality for some people. This man is standing tall and he is proud. He should have better been humble rather than standing up tall and being proud, because pride is nothing else but an inflation of the ego. Pride has its place in the economy of the soul, like everything else, because you cannot exist without your ego, but it is not supposed to take over in that way. And here is a very brief paragraph, which you could mention, which you could meditate upon, because this is indeed against everything. Your own ego, which is trying to, to mark a territory, which is trying to say, me, 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 dies when it hears this thing, which I'm going to tell you now. That's almost sounding like unacceptable. It sounds like throwing yourself head forward from a tall building or something. It's like, it's almost inconceivable. Nevertheless, here is one of the great teachers saying a short word on humility. He says, the following are the signs of humility. 
when possessing every virtue of body and soul, to consider oneself to be the more a debtor to God, because though unworthy, one has received so much by grace, when tried or tempted by the demons or by men, to regard oneself as deserving such things, and much more, so that a small part of one's debt may be taken away, and one may find some mitigation of the punishment one expects on the day of judgment. When not suffering any such trial, which means when you are not persecuted or tempted, to be extremely troubled and afflicted, and to look for some way in which to exert oneself more forcibly, on achieving this, again, to take it as a gift from God, and so to humble oneself further, and not discovering anything, to give God in return, to continue to labor, and to consider oneself to be all the more a debtor. This philosophy, in which I don't stand to get anything, is the ultimate karma yoga, because we all can brag of being a karma yogis, but secretly we are all asking for fruits, if not for visible fruits, then for invisible fruits. These spiritual practitioners have been so shrewd in their spiritual practice and so deep that they tried, that they cut off even this motivation. The more you do, the more you are a debtor. And the more you do, the less you have. And the more you do, you should just thank God even more because you didn't get anything. And incredible, he says, if you don't have any trouble, be alarmed because you are not doing enough effort. It means the devil is not interested in you and it's not persecuting you and it means you are lazy. You are not giving worries to the devil because in the moment when you push, in that moment you will have some opposition. That is why any form of opposition or obstacle is for them an uh, opportunity to develop this humbleness. And here another, the second one which I wanted to read, and perhaps it's going to be the last for tonight, is uh, what he calls here the patient endurance this being taken directly from the Bible, if you remember the letter to the Corinthians, there Paul, when he describes love, he says love endures for long. It's like love has a sort of endless patience. It says love hopes, love does not revel in evil, and all the things which you know, you can read that periodically, but one of the characteristics which he gives to love is that he says that love endures everything. Love is kind of having this long patience. They call it patient endurance. Here is a meditation of two pages and a half of Peter of Damascus on patient endurance, which is coming from the heart. The Lord said, He who endures patiently to the end will be saved. Patient endurance is the consolidation of all the virtues, because without it, not one of them can subsist. For whoever turns back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I can tell you one thing from my yoga experience 
of this quarter of a century. Eh? All those who did not have patience, and whom I have seen in my life as friends, colleagues, or pupils, they did not endure till the end. I have until today not seen a single person who endured till the end in their spiritual effort and who did not get the spiritual results. That's why Krishna tells to Arjuna, the way to win is Abhyasa and Vairagya, detachment, Vairagya and Abhyasa, perseverance. That's the other half of it. This perseverance is patient endurance. Some of you want to do yoga for five years. Yoga, not in a formal way with me in a school, a student, but yoga, your yoga, which means your union with God, because that's what yoga is, it's union. Your yoga is patient endurance. It lasts from today till the end of your lives. There is no end to it. Everybody goes through patient endurance. We are tested at this formidable test and that is why without this patience we cannot do anything. The Zen teachers, there is this sentence in the novel Shogun which the guy takes from the Zen teachers which is taken from the standpoint of Manipura but even there you have the wisdom of God expressed at its own level where this guy, the British hero, he is all the time stupid and brutal and he has no class like the Orientals do. And finally he learns to control himself a little bit and then the shogun-to-be tells him, good, patience is the beginning of wisdom. Like you can't even begin to be wise if you haven't got patience. There is no wisdom without patience. That patience is exactly expressed in the heart this patient endurance. For whoever turns back, remember, because you are all tempted to turn back one point or another, is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Quoting from Luke. Indeed, even though someone thinks that he is in possession of all the virtues, he is still not fit for the kingdom until he has first endured to the end and escaped from the snares of the devil, for only thus can he attain it. Even those who have received the foretaste of the kingdom stand in need of patient endurance if they are to gain their final reward in the age to be. That's what they say also in India, although there are not many people pay attention to it. Even if you tasted of samadhi, you still have to hammer, you still have to be on it, because it doesn't mean that everything has been solved without you doing any more effort. There is still the patient endurance. Indeed, in every form of learning and knowledge, persistence is needed. This is natural, since even sensible things cannot be produced without it. When any such thing is born, there has to be a period of patient waiting, if it is to continue to live. In short, patient endurance is required before anything can come about. And once something has come about, it can be sustained and brought to perfection only through such endurance. If it is something good, this virtue assists and guards it. 
if something evil, it confers relief and strength of soul and does not permit the person being tempted to grow faint-hearted, thus experiencing a foretaste of hell. Patient endurance kills the despair that kills the soul. A very important thing, yes? Not to live guilty. Patient endurance is, if you take, even if you did something horrible, you take it from Anahata. When you take it from Anahata, it kills that depression which kills the soul. Patient endurance kills the despair that kills the soul. It teaches the soul to take comfort and not to grow listless in the face of its many battles and afflictions. What a knowledge of the soul. It's many battles and afflictions. Some of you are still young and you don't know what comes ahead of you. Your temptation is maybe to go out there and get lost in the matrix, trying to forget with a glass of wine or of brandy. But if you will not fall to this temptation, you will see that you will have many battles and afflictions to come. Life is not as simple as it sounds and when you go through it spiritually, then you understand what it is. Judas lacked this virtue and because of his inexperience in spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, life is a spiritual warfare, because of his inexperience in spiritual warfare, suffered a double death, death of the soul and death of the body, because he hanged himself. Peter, chief of the apostles, possessed it, being an experienced warrior, and where, when he fell, he defeated the devil who had overthrown him. Because he fell, he lost confidence, he was depressed, and then he suddenly stood up again, and he said, so what? Yes, I'm guilty as hell. Yes, I denied Jesus. Yes, I was a coward. Yes, I'm a miserable. But my soul will not die because of this. I'm not going to fall into the despair that kills the soul. I will bear. I will bear this thing as well as everything else. Patient endurance. What this man had to bear that he cried for the next 30 years. He had to bear a lot. He made himself bear a lot. His soul did not die. So if you bear in the right way, it is your growth. This is your spiritual evolution. The monk who once lapsed into unchastity acquired it and conquered his conqueror by not yielding to the counsel of despair that urged him to abandon his cell and his solitude. That is from John Cassianus. It's one of the monks, one of these fathers of the desert, who lost his chastity, he fornicated, he did something, and then he was tempted to do what I have seen so many people doing in my life. If they screwed up a little bit, they chicken and they ran away altogether, like everything was lost. Oh, I did this, it means I can't do yoga or whatever anymore. Why are you so extreme? You just lost a little skirmish in a battle, in a war. It's nothing is lost yet. You are still alive, therefore the spiritual warfare continues. You don't have to give up because you got defeated once. And therefore, it's, the rule is very clear, this patient endurance. Patiently, he said to the thoughts that tempted him, I have not sinned, and again I say to you, I have not sinned. 
what divine understanding and patience in that noble man. This blessed virtue brought the writer's job and his initial good works to fulfillment, for had he lacked it even slightly, you remember, I hope, the parable of Job, who is a proeminent citizen in the Old Testament, and the devil tempts him by making lose him lose everything. Wealth, name, family, children, everything. And even when he lost everything and he is destitute, he says, God has given, God has taken, praise be to God. It's like, I am still with God. I endure, I endure patiently forever and ever, because I love God. This is the endurance of love. I can endure forever. There is nothing which will stop me from this. And then Job is of course glorified in the end because this was just a kind of radical test, a kind of ultimate test for him. And that is why you, when you are like Job or like this monk or like Peter or like so many pitfalls, so many downfalls that we have in our lives, Patient endurance, love, and the patient endurance which comes from it is the answer. And he says, This blessed virtue brought the righteous job and his initial good works to fulfillment. For had he lacked it even slightly, he would have obliterated all the good he had previously done. If he would have started to blaspheme on God because all this bad luck hit him, he would have lost all his virtuous life from before and all the merit which he had accumulated would have gone to naught just because he didn't have patience. This patience is a lifelong patience. But God, who knew his patience, allowed the plague to strike him for his own perfecting and for the benefit of many others. Because how many benefited from the example of Job? How many got moral fortitude from that? He then, who knows what is to be to his benefit, should struggle to acquire this virtue before anything else, according to St. Basil the Great. For St. Basil advises us not to fight against all the passions at once, since if we are unsuccessful, we might turn back and no longer be fit for the kingdom of heaven. You get discouraged and you say, I can't do this yoga. I am not fit for spirituality. That's without the heart. The heart says, take it easy. Take it easy. What I didn't do today, I'm going to do tomorrow. I cannot win all the battles at the same time. And therefore, remember, I'm saying it again. The biggest obstacle which I have seen in my life to spiritual practitioners was this, that those people who gave up that's why, as Dalai Lama says, never give up. Never, never give up. This is what spiritual practice is all about from this standpoint. Rather, we should fight the passions one at a time and start by patiently enduring whatever befalls us. This is right, for the person who lacks patient endurance will never be able to stand fast even in an ordinary battle, but will bring only flight and destruction upon himself and others by retreating. This is why God told Moses not to allow anyone who was cowardly to go out with the army. In an ordinary war, it may be possible for someone 
to remain inside in his house and not go out to fight and through and though by doing this he loses gifts and honors he may live on in poverty and dishonor but in spiritual warfare it is impossible to find a place anywhere in creation in which a battle is not being waged there is no stable point in this world everything evolves if you want a break nirvana is the only break that you can get there is no break till the end of the game anyhow and this saying points it so you can re- you can run away from a battle a human battle but you cannot run away from evolution from the spiritual battle and therefore it's better to catch the bull by the horns and be responsible because else you just accept cowardice in the desert there are wild beasts and demons and other malefic and terrifying things in places of solitude and stillness there are demons trials and temptations in the midst of human company there are demons and men who try one and tempt one there is no place anywhere where one is unmolested and because of this without patient endurance it is impossible to find peace so important conclusion you realize there is nowhere peace but in your heart with patient endurance such endurance is born of fear and faith fear they use instead in the meaning of fear of god which is actually not a paranoic fear an animal fear the fear of god is more like an awe like the apostles who saw jesus transfigured and they fell to the ground in awe but that is not the animal fear it's not the organic fear it's more like the fear of arjuna when he sees the cosmic form of krishna and he feels i'm going to dissolve i'm going to lose myself i'm going crazy and therefore it's like another fear so he says such endurance is born of fear and faith that fear which is cosmic consciousness though it originates in understanding he who is sensible tests things in the light of his intellect and when he finds that he is quote hemmed in on every side to use susanna's words another story from the bible he chooses what is better as she did for she said to god quote i am hemmed in on every side if i do the will of the lawless priests my soul will perish because of my adultery but if i disobey them they will accuse me of adultery and as judges of the people will condemn me to death it is better for me to take refuge in the almighty even if death awaits me so it is exactly this kind this is the battle here again how great was the wisdom of that blessed woman for as soon as the people gathered together and the lawless judge has sat down to accuse her blameless as she was and to condemn her to death as an adulteress then daniel though only 12 years old was shown by god to be a prophet and saved her from death transferring the death sentence from her to the priests who were about to judge her unjustly this is from the story of susanna in the bible through susanna god has shown how close he is 
to those who are willing to endure trials for his sake and who will not abandon virtue out of cowardice because of the suffering involved, but cleave to the law of God by patiently enduring what befalls them, rejoicing in the hope of salvation. And they have good cause to do this, for when confronted by two perils, one with temporary and the other with eternal consequences, is it not better to choose the first? For this reason, St. Isaac says that it is better to endure dangers out of love for God and to cleave to Him in the hope of eternal life than through fear of trials to fall away from God into the hands of the devil and to be condemned with Him to punishment. If we love God, then like the saints, we should rejoice in our own trials. But even if we are not like them, let us at least choose the better path simply out of constraint, for we are in fact constrained either to run bodily risks in this present life, thereby attaining the state of dispassion, detachment, and so coming to reign with Christ spiritually in this age and in the age to be, or else, as I have said, to fall away through fear of trials, and be committed to age-long punishment. May God save us from punishment by giving us the strength patiently to endure whatever terrible things befall us. Endurance is like an unshakable rock in the winds and waves of life. However the tempest batters him, the patient man remains steadfast and does not turn back, and when he finds relief and joy, he is not carried away by self-glory. He is always the same, whether things are hard or easy, and, this, and for this reason he is proof against the snares of the enemy. When storms beset him, he endures them with joy, awaiting their end, and when the heavens smile on him, he expects temptation until his last breath, as Saint Anthony has said. Such a person knows that nothing in life is unchangeable and that all things pass. Thus, he is not troubled or anxious about any of them, but leaves all things in the hands of God, for he has us in his care, and to him belong all glory, honor, and dominion throughout the ages. Amen. And with this, we have gone into the description of one of the astonishing virtues and I hope that it will determine you to search your hearts and see how long your endurance is, how patient your endurance is and together with the reading about humbleness and together with some examples of great lives to be able to again copy more and more of these virtues of the heart. As you can see Many of them are not ego-inflated, and that's why they are not so popular in this day, because in this day of lack of spirituality, our spirituality is not attacked at the level of small things, that I have been utterly non-violent or a little bit violent, that I have been utterly truthful or I said a little lie here and there, 
that this and that. Today's proforma spirituality, this uh, histrionic, theatrical, social type of spirituality, is very much linked to all kind of things which are visible and obvious. But funny enough, as you saw, Jesus was very tolerant to those kind of uh, misdeeds or how shall we sell them, treading over the line. And at the same time, he was completely adamant when it came to other things which were afflicting exactly this hypocrisy, this hypocrisy brought into spirituality. And the path of the heart is a path which is a path of self-sacrifice. It is a path of diminishing oneself. It is a path in which one has to endure many things. Mahatma Gandhi, who was not a glorious bhakti yogi, but who still did a lot of things of bhakti, even if it was for his Indian background, Mahatma Gandhi, who therefore did practice a lot of the virtues of the heart, Mahatma Gandhi had to undergo a lot of things. His wife died in front of him because she spent years and years with him in the prisons and she died as a result of an infection and he refused the treatments with antibiotics and others and then he blamed himself for it. When Mahatma Gandhi died, only one of his three children participated to the funeral. The others, his two of his children, didn't even attend the funeral of their father who was the famous Gandhi because they had been raised by relatives, they were not in India, they were not around, they had no connection. Gandhi had lost his children by dealing, by saving India. Therefore, you realize, he was a decent human being, he was a wonderful, a loving human being. Therefore, he must have suffered in losing thus his children, because he was up on the barricades all the time. That's why the path of the heart, it is a path of sacrifice. When you see many of these lives, I was seeing the other day an arty version of the life of Saint Teresa, and there are lives of other modern saints, which you, you see in all of them this extraordinary sacrifice, that they have this patient endurance, and that a lot of things uh, have to be endured by them. And that is why people in the modern world, having this superficiality of Zvadistana and Manipura, they say, no, I don't want to go to this, I want to be like this, I want to be like that. It is not correct. This is one of the points where, again, I cannot say that in all uh, authority, because this is just a humble opinion, ultimately a personal humble opinion, but uh, it is a way in which you can see at least this much, that, for example, modern, some modern mystics have followed this path of a self-sacrifice, like Padre Pio and others. And others did not follow it. For example, let's take the very simple example of modern times of Rajneesh, of Osho Rajneesh, who is a Sagittarian, he is not very much on Anahata, he is quite on Manipura, he has this extraordinary intelligence, he can be sarcastic, he can be cynical, he can be caustic, he can be brilliant in so many ways, but in the moment when he himself starts going through tribulations, he, in the beginning, refuses them. There is one of his speeches where he is kind of pressed because the Indian government is pressing on him. And then, of course, as you might know, the stories of Rajneesh, 
the American government presses on him and he went through tribulations nevertheless, but he didn't always have the patient endurance. Like sometimes trying to solve things with money and bribery, sometimes trying to solve things with weapons and I don't know what and so on and say we're not going to get shot like Gandhi, we're not stupid. Like Gandhi was stupid that he allowed himself martyrized. And uh, Rajneesh, even in one of his lectures, because he liked to be provocative and he was in this character and with his flashy Manipura, Sagittarian type of spirit, he says, uh, I'm not going to bear a cross on my shoulder because it's going to hurt my shoulder. So he says, if ever they give me a cross, I'll have it carried on one of my Rolls Royces because he said, a show a cross on my... It's like, you know, you would have never had other mystics say this. Ramakrishna wouldn't have said this metaphorically and neither would have Yogananda actually and others. That is why uh, whatever, whoever Rajneesh did and wherever he is now or whatever he reached spiritually, one thing is pretty clear. His was not very much the path of the heart because in the path of the heart he would have been possessed by other kinds of virtues and a different kind of psychology. And that is why in the, the path of the heart becomes for many people, while in some countries it is there because people have it in their blood. And so you find it in countries where there is a big mystical tradition and people understand this word of Khalil Gibran that you don't get only the smile of love, you get the tears of love as well and some people willingly do it and they sacrifice themselves for their family, for a lot of other people and they, even when there are lots of tears, they put their head down with humbleness and they endure patiently. In other situations, especially the Western culture, has become this humpty dumpty, merry be happy at all costs type of thing that you cannot uh, take a moment of sadness. If you are sad, you have to sniff some cocaine or do whatever. Go to a disco, get drunk, have sex, make a truckload of money, whatever, to cover that gap. Because if you stay alone and look in yourself, you feel like you are going to start crying. And very few people realize that that crying is one of the most productive things which happens in your life. Because it is not the useless, depressive, confused, suicidal, hysterical, nonsensical cryer, cry from Zvadistana, which is based on just some unfulfilled emotions. This is a cry which comes from much deeper, and which is the cry of the heart. And most of the great spirits of this planet have been seen with tears in their eyes, which came from a mixture of joy and gratitude, and love of God, and it is exactly this self-annihilation which comes from cultivation of humbleness, humility, and from the cultivation of patient endurance, and the other virtues of the heart. That is why, yes, when you go out there in that competitive world based on power, games, and ego, the virtues of the heart are making you a strange outsider, even the path of peace pilgrim, this American woman who decided to live with a backpack and to live at the mercy of men and elements, is kind of wild. It's like too much. It's like, why would you do that? 
is like, why would you go to such length? The path of the heart can easily understand those things. And again, for other people, it's very difficult to see where this is. That's why we keep talking about these things and I'll keep talking for weeks because I'm trying to impregnate you a little bit with something which unfortunately the world from where you come has never shown to you and very few, very, very few of you are privileged enough to come from environments and places where you have actually encountered such things embedded in the very culture and daily life of people. If you would have been born in an Indian village or somewhere in a poor village in Russia or some other cultures which have this Anahata Chakra ingrained in their psychic structure, you would have seen such things and you would have understood that actually, oh, this is how my grandmother was. What actually he says here, I remember my grand-grandmother, she was something like this. People talked about her, that she was this kind. Well, they don't make them anymore, these kind of people, or they exist fewer and fewer. This is the lost heritage. This is the modernism, which is destroying the roots. All the great metaphysical traditionalists, they have decried this rootlessness, that we are brought to deny our roots and everything, and in this way we cannot make contact with these existential modes which once existed and almost every nation which benefited of a good religious environment has discovered them one way or another because they are inevitable when you work on the heart and when you go there. And that is why it is important for you to regain, to, re to regain these things, to reconnect, to be reminded of some things which human beings in their quest for a superficial joy, an artificial joy produced by whatever means they can, most often artificial also, uh, is are actually trying to avoid looking in their own hearts, looking in their own... It's not that the heart is a sad place, not at all, because the tears of the heart may be at times sad, when you see some emptiness and when you see some darkness, because everybody at some time or another hits some darkness in their heart. And may, but it's a cowardice to avoid this uh, confrontation. And ultimately, the great tears of the heart are tears of joy. Ultimately, they are tears of gratitude and they are tears of self-discovery. They are tears of recovering the ultimate treasure of our lost identity. And for this reason, meditate on these unusual patterns which result from the arousing of the heart chakra. We'll finish now. I'm sorry we started later again. Uh, we'll try to correct it again next time. And um, I'm glad that you have patient endurance with this one as well. And we'll stop for now. Next week, I'm going to continue still in the same length, slowly, slowly giving you more and more, maybe one or two of these patterns anchor themselves in your soul and you start practicing some of the virtues of the heart, thus developing your heart accordingly. Let's stop for tonight. Rest well. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. 
For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.